Let me open in prayer. Our Father and God, what a privilege it is to gather as your chosen people, uh, elected out of the pool of enemies, Lord. That you have reached down to us, you have opened our eyes, eyes lifted the veil, and drawn us to yourselves. And Lord, as we come around your word this morning, help us to quieten our hearts and minds that we would uh, seek not just to understand your word, but to live it out, uh, to be the salt and light that you call us to be, uh, to be those who are known to love one another so that the world may know that we are yours. And uh, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this is, was meant to be um, a series, and it is, um, although I am jumping around a bit um, in Scripture, as one does when it's kind of a topical, although this is an expository sermon, it is on the, the topic of giving. And generally when you are preaching on giving, there are some go-to passages. This is not one of them, um, but... I think it is important that we get our foundations right, and I think this speaks to that. And it was even mentioned this morning in our giving, as we looked at a candidate in Uganda, who we want to be joyful givers toward his need, that even as a church, we shouldn't know what the right hand is doing, with the left hand doing what the right hand is doing. How does that go again? Let your left hand not know what your right hand is doing. That principle of anonymity, that we are not displaying our generosity, that we are giving in secret so that we are rewarded in secret. And so the topic, uh, the discussion this morning is on that idea of righteous giving. There is such thing as an unrighteous giver. If you remember back when I preached through the Sermon on the Mount, which again, that was, that was maybe too far to recall. Um, there was a lot to cover. Um, but the first and the most important point on the Sermon on the Mount was in chapter 5 of Matthew. And that is that God's righteousness, His righteousness, is perfect. God's standard for righteousness cannot be satisfied simply by an outward obedience of following these prescribed do's and don'ts. There's no outward religion that satisfies God's moral perfection. Now, Christ revealed again that God looks where? At the heart. That's where his eyes are on. Not the outward religion, not the outward works, but the inner man. And his standard is so high that Christ explained how even those permissible inward sins of adultery is in the mind. It's committed in the heart. And that lust in the heart, in the secrecy of your own mind, is adultery before God. He also explained that anger is equal to murder. And because the sin is committed in the heart, even though there is no outward action, it is still a sin because of the entertaining of it. And so after Christ has gone through the first part of his sermon, the hearers would have understood that God's righteousness is not their righteousness. It is not the same. They cannot attain that. They cannot relate to it. Because His holiness is absolutely perfect. And so is His standard for holiness. And the hearers would have started to understand that they can't attain this high and perfect righteous standard. They would openly understand that they need someone 
to save them from their lack of righteousness before a God who is perfect. And any failure to be perfect in our love for God, in our love and our expression of love to others, means that we fall short. Uh, to the extent that not even showing mercy or not even showing compassion, not even desiring a purity of heart or not being poor in spirit, all these things that Christ, Christ was preaching on the Sermon about means that we fall short in that regard. And after Christ has explained how perfect God is in comparison to man, our feeble attempts to be free of sin, um, to reach that standard, Christ moves now into this next part of his sermon where he exposes false righteousness in more detail. It's implied in obviously the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, but here he goes into some specifics to help us to grapple with it. So in this part of it, in this chapter, chapter 6 in Matthew, we see hypocritical acts, hypocritical giving, hypocritical prayer, the hypocritical fasting, um, and hypocritical commitment, um, or yeah, commitment to one another even. But this morning we're going to focus on the giving. And I think it's a fitting place for the sermon to go, because as soon as Jesus revealed to us these major sin issues, the anger, the lust, the lack of integrity, lack of one for another, he, he doesn't want us to leave us thinking that we can fix our problems by just working harder. You know, often that's the prescription and the solution. You're not doing well, falling short, not attaining a certain standard, then do better. Just work harder at it. Uh, and that's often how we want to apply the solution, right? By trying to justify ourselves, we, we just do more deeds. And I'm sure we can relate to <clears throat> a particular sin that Christ here reveals to us. Maybe, I'm not trying to identify that sin in the mo moment, but I'm sure you can. Maybe it's covetousness. Uh, maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. There are things going, as Christ listed those areas, there are inward sins, but sins nonetheless we can identify. <clears throat> and rather than seeing our helplessness and our need um, to be changed by Christ, we might think that we can just work out those areas that are weak, make up the difference. That's, that's the way I'm trying to prescribe, describe it. So rather than hearing what Christ has to say, about accepting that we do fall short, and we are sinners, and we are in desperate need of a Savior, some hear Jesus reveal their sin, and they think, well, I can do an exchange. I kind of balance sheet uh, of sin accounting. Um, Gaynor was very helpful in reminding me of some accounting principles this past week, so I thought that was a good illustration of a, it's a balanced spreadsheet. They feel the need to work harder in areas that they don't struggle with, uh, or, sorry, that they they do struggle with and try to balance out that sin equation. So, for example, you may say, well, I have so many of these red-letter sins, which as an accounting means you're a deficit, you're, you're, you're falling short, these red-letter sins in this side of the spreadsheet, so I'll do extra work on these black-letter areas of righteousness that I am good uh, to balance out the sin quotient. Don't write this down. This is a terrible illustration. <laughs> Some, some may say in their hearts, well, my lack of righteousness causes me to be a liar. And maybe the, the burning with lust reveals to me that I am an adulterer in my heart. But I pray a lot. You see, 
that is better. That prayer, that sacrificial prayer is balancing out this lust issue that I cannot deal with. So I'm all right. Or I have a major, major anger problems and I can't overcome that anger sin. And that makes me a murderer, according to Christ. But I give generously. I give like no one else gives. And that balances it out. I'm better than you less generous givers. And we'll get to how that is hypocrisy as well. Or I fast. And you just don't see people fasting anymore. So if I, I can do all of these things and I can fast and make up for it. We justify these things in our mind. I was not, not saying we as a church, hopefully. But that is what Christ is dealing with here. That kind of thinking, that kind of person. And maybe it's a struggling believer. Or, and in this context, it could be even an unbeliever he's describing here. They try to exchange their extra good works for their unreconciled sin. They feel justified because they may be murderers at heart, adulterers at heart. But they make up through that extra prayer, extra giving. And they fill in that deficit. And that's the sin nature. That if you find you're falling short in some areas of your life, you sometimes comfort yourself, justify yourself, because you do well in those other areas. And that's a problem here. We can deceive ourselves that we are right with one another, we are right with the Lord, because we only remember those good things, those good deeds. But are they good? We'll get to that too. So we ignore those areas in our lives that we should be pricked in our conscience, right? They should drive us to repentance. But we gloss them over, we cover them up because we think we are good because of those other areas. And the danger Christ throws us, shows us through this first part of his sermon, and if you haven't turned there already, please do, uh, it's Matthew 6, 1, um, is that he's showing us that we are not good people. We are lying, we're lustful murderers at heart. And even just one of those sins <laughs> changes everything. We are now guilty. We're no longer perfect. We're no longer righteous. And now we need a Savior. And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains that He knows this of us. He's, he's ready for that argument we've already worked up and cooked up in our hearts and minds that we are deceiving ourselves that we can be good in other areas. There's no scales of unrighteous and righteous works that God looks at. He looks at because He is perfect and because He is holy, a sin is enough. This section, Christ examines even our righteous deeds before men and reveals to us how hideous they really are in many cases, how unrighteous they are. And especially if it's done to try to justify ourselves and to balance out this unconfessed sin. In six, chapter 6, Christ shows us that we are certainly not as good as we think, even on our best days, many of our good deeds are like filthy rags because they are done for the eye service of man or maybe self-gratification or to be seen as righteous. So in chapter 6, you'll note there are 34 verses. Don't worry, we aren't going to try to get through all of those because the first point that Christ makes here is the main point, thankfully. He gets right to the heart of the issue in the first Verse. Let me read that. Chapter 6, Matthew. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, 
that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Wow. The first word in this warning about unrighteous works is a pretty stark one. It's a warning to beware. This is a warning to those listening to his sermon who make a, may make the connection between the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their own practice of righteous deeds that is done for public consumption so that they will be seen, that they will be praised. And Christ uses this warning, beware, because of the danger of not examining the motivation of these good deeds of the believer. Christ warns us to beware because this is one of those dangers that's not so obvious sometimes. Um, Giving and other righteous-looking deeds can look the same on the outside to the observer. To be generous is a good thing, to be sure, even if some people happen to notice you doing it. And if they happen to notice you're doing it, you're being generous, because you've made yourself known that you're being generous and made it clear that you're being righteous, there is a difference. Christ warns the believers to be aware of this difference in this passage because God looks at the heart, not the deed. So Christ alerts his hearers to this very danger. And it's a danger that can sneak up on us if we're not examining our hearts and our motivation in our righteous deeds. If you're not always checking to see that you're doing the right thing for the right reason, which is God's glory, that is the only right reason, then it is a rewardless reason that you're doing it. So the danger that Christ is warning us about is in verse 1. What is it? Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In other words, he's saying, make sure the reason you do these deeds is for the Lord. It's very normal for people... I think, to enjoy praise. Do you not enjoy recognition and praise? We love to be recognized for something that we've achieved or accomplished, um, and that's a normal worldly response. Um, We love to be seen in a good light. We don't want to be seen as awful, as terrible people, but good people. And if you maybe achieve some extra accomplishment in academic circles or in sport, or have done something extraordinary, and your fellow man praises for it, there is a sense of satisfaction with that, right? And if someone praises you for fantastic parenting or your spiritual discipline in some areas, that is a good thing to be praised about. It's seeking the praise that is the warning, seeking after it. It's being motivated by this praise that Christ is warning about here. Even a preacher likes to hear that their sermon was understood, Um, it was well-received. I don't like to hear that my sermons were confusing or long-winded, and there have been times. um, We used to have a a review session after preaching, especially in the early days, and they were hard (laughs) to hear, (laughs) but they help you grow. But if someone says, hey, that was a great sermon, um, I do enjoy to hear that. That's a nice thing, but I don't seek it out. 
I've even been cautioned, and I agree, that it, it's a temptation. Some, I think it was Spurgeon, said, get behind me, Satan, when somebody once approached him and said, what a great sermon. Because he doesn't want that recognition. It's God's word that he's declaring, not his own. So I'd rather be accurate, I'd rather be faithful to the text and receive no praise than to torture a sermon or dress it up in order to receive accolades, right? That's because my motivation and a preacher's motivation should be to be glorifying the Lord, not to be seeking for the praise of men. And that is one of the principles here in Christ's warning, is just that. Even your good deeds, where you might receive praise, be careful that you're not doing it for the praise, or to be seen by men. Because if you desire the praise, desire to be seen, then that will be the reason you do it, not for His glory. So why is this a danger? Because for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. No reward. Christ is saying that if you do a good deed toward your fellow man, and you do it for the wrong reason, for praise, then you'll have no praise from the Lord. And that's the one you should be desiring. But that's a deposit. That comes later. We want immediate satisfaction sometimes. So Christ is making us aware that not all the good things that we do are actually good because our motivation spoils it, ruins it. And not all the good deeds that we do will be recognized by God is what he's saying. And this is a scriptural principle that Paul later expands on in the Corinthian church in his letter to them in the first Corinthian uh, chapter 3. He says this, verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There's a lot in there, but Paul here is warning the church and the believers that they could be doing lots of seemingly busy building deeds, great teaching even. But if it's not built on the truth of the gospel and done so that God is glorified, it will be burned in the refiner's fire. Nothing will survive. None of the deeds will come through that trial and because they're not what? He describes what will the precious things, the pure things that are pure and precious in and of themselves. You don't make them, you're just simply displaying them. So, those things that don't survive are built of straw, wood and hay, not the gold and the silver and the precious stones that survive. And so that refining fire described there is God's standard, is perfect and holy standard. And that's what determines what is righteous. That it, it's the, the gold and not the straw. Can you hear me over that rain, by the way? It's really loud on the side. Okay. So Paul expresses this motivation again later in this letter, in uh, verse 3 of 13. 
If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The warning tells us that it's possible to be doing the right thing externally toward your fellow man, toward one another, seemingly good deeds, generous deeds even, but you'll receive no reward from God for it if it's done in the wrong way. Let's think of a worldly illustration. Think of it as a man who's been very diligent in saving up for his retirement. And he's got a plan to put away small amounts each month to then withdraw it at the time when it is going to be needed. And he's disciplined himself. He's, um, he's read all the right financial books. He's followed all the right counsel. So he's definitely bought gold. Um, and he's done that faithfully. But then on that fateful day, when he does reach that age, when he comes to the bank, he strolls into that office, I said, not the bank, they won't have money by then, uh, financial office, um, and he finds out that there's been an error. The financial advisor gives him the bad news, we're sorry, there's no money in that account. It's not that the money wasn't there, the money always existed, It just was allocated in the wrong way. It was already spent by you. You spent it bit by bit. You weren't actually putting it away in the account that you thought you were. It was being spent month by month on just benign, normal things. All the diligence of thinking you were putting money away each month then is actually being spent on inconsequential things. Holidays, cheeseburgers, surfboards. Um, so imagine finding out that after years of expectation and putting aside this savings, this precious treasure you think you've acquired, you find that you've already squandered it unwittingly. That's his warning. You may think you're storing up reward, this eternal treasure deposited in heaven, but it's not going to be there. And... Um, an even more tragic part about this warning, and it's implicit in the text, I'm cautiously saying this, it's not directly in the text, but it's obvious there. it's there by implication, that some will also find out on that day they're not known by God, right? External works, busy with religion, he doesn't even know them. They may have been busy their whole lives doing works of service and attending church their whole life and sitting under the right teachers and buying the right texts. And Christ will say, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So they're doing work. He doesn't say depart from me, you lazy, unbusy, unfaithful even. They were faithful to something. They were busy doing things. But he says depart from them because of their lawless deeds done wrongly, not for his glory, selfishly done. Remember, these are the people that are surprised that they're not known by Christ um, in in, uh, chapter 7. Because not only did they devote themselves to lives of ministry and works, which it says there, it says even more than that, it says mighty works. So these weren't done in secret. These were well-known works. Um, extravagant in, in their effort. Yet not only is there no reward for them in heaven, there's no heaven for them. 
that they're cast out. So that is an implied tragedy here as well. And yet it's possible to be deceived to such a degree that Christ warns the hearers to watch out that they are in the faith. Be aware that they could be building with hay and wood and straw and not the treasures of gold and silver and precious stones. So when you practice your righteousness to be noticed by men, there's no word reward for those works. Let's look at why this is quickly. Why is it wrong? I think it should be obvious, but I think it needs to be still, still stated why it's wrong to be seen by men in your works. The short answer, it's a sin word, uh, a, a, a command to avoid, and that is idolatry. What is idolatry? This means you are seeking to bring glory to yourself where it belongs to God. We know that God shares many things in Scripture. The principle is that God showers blessing on the just and the unjust, right? He brings rain to the unjust and to the just, uh, sunlight and so on. He's merciful where He wants to be merciful, right? And grace where He'll show grace. But there's one thing that He does not share, and that's His glory. God does not share His glory with anyone. It's for Him and for Him alone. In Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And it's also in Isaiah 48.11. So when someone does good deeds on earth and attempt to receive their glory, their own glory, self-glorification, they're stealing that that belongs to God alone. That's idolatry. So that's the danger. This is why Christ gives us such a clear warning to be aware of this kind of self-glorification in our deeds. They look good, they're received well, but they're not for Him, they're for yourself. So we need to ask ourselves before we do anything, ask that question, does this glorify God? By examining your motivation, you should know your motivation. Not always, it's, we, we are very good at deceiving ourselves as well. But it is a question that needs to be asked and it has to be answered. Does this glorify God? If it does, you'll avoid the, the danger that Christ is showing us here, the warning. And the first example in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is giving, right? So, um, and I think more specifically, giving to the poor. The poor is specifically mentioned here because when you give to somebody who has nothing, I mean, poor is very poor in the New Testament context, but when they have nothing, then there's no opportunity to expect something back, right? You're giving something to them with no tangible expectation of getting something back. The gift is given without any expectation of reward or reciprocation from that, poor, that person who has nothing. Because, again, in the New Testament context, poor means without means. Like, um, not like in our modern context where somebody who's poor might still have dial-up internet or something. Uh, or no car in the driveway. In the New Testament context, poor meant dirt. They would have a cloak and maybe one sandal. Poor. Uh, so, when you give to someone who is poor, the only tangible reward then for you, because there is still something, and this is the warning, is that you might be seen giving to that person, that righteous deed, and you want to grab that reward 
be by being recognized. They might reward you with praise. They might reward you with something back to you later because they noticed. Uh, You were ensured to be seen by them and now you know you might get something back from them. So giving to the poor in the context here means giving to those who cannot afford to give anything in return. No political favor, no future expectation of reciprocation, nothing. The only reward is a future one from the Lord because it was given to the Lord, from the Lord even, which we'll look at just now. All you have is from the Lord. So anything you give is from the Lord. But in the principle of giving from the heart, it also has to be given for Him. We see this principle that Christ teaches in other Gospels, Luke 14. If you want to quickly turn there, I won't expound on it too much, but it's uh, Luke 14, 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you or you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Well, that summarizes that principle very well. Christ is saying that if you are only inviting people over for the banquet who will benefit you in some way in the future, then your generosity is not righteous at all. It's a future deposit for yourself. By four man, by man, two man. So you need to invite those who cannot help themselves and in no way are able to help you because of your generosity. And your payment will be made at the resurrection of the just. That is an unknown and even undesired reward in a sense because those rewards you receive from God, you will also want to deposit to Him as gratitude that He enabled you to even love. That's God's reward. There is a similar principle in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 6 and 7, if you're writing this down. Uh, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it speaks to the motivation here very clearly, that you're not to be reluctantly giving, and if you are giving in secret, but generously, you will also reap generously because God has seen what is done in secret. And on the other hand, those who do not give to the poor are not seen as, the, as belonging to the Lord even, because they don't have the love of God in them. In 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. I think we should identify very much with this passage. That He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for, our, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we can see that love is not implied. It is, it is not just a principle, it is a command. It demonstrates our love for one another, when we look at giving, 
And it demonstrates mostly our love for the Lord if we give without any expectation, even the expectation of praise of man. So we also know from these passages that we've looked at that, that giving isn't a problem. Lots of people give. In fact, in our modern times, the most generous people in terms of monetary giving are raging atheists, globalists, but they give on condition, recognition and political favor. They want praise of men and they want to escalate their influence in the world. And in verse 2, we're back to Matthew 6 now, verse 2, we learn something about giving. And it's something that the hypocrites do. Verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. <coughs> Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now we know this passage well, we've read it since we were children, but it does require, I think, a closer examination. Here, Christ says, not if you give, but he says when, when you give to the needy. This means that giving to those in need is something that should be expected of the believer. Sorry. <clears throat> and <clears throat> the point Christ is making here is that just because you do it, it doesn't guarantee that you're a believer. It is possible to give something, to give generously and doing it in an unloving manner. But according to the gospel, it's impossible, it's impossible to love and not give. I want that to sink in. It's, impos it's possible to give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving. And that is precisely the point that he's making here. How do we know if we're giving for His glory? We're still in verse 2, and Christ says that when you do give, do not give like those hypocrites. And He really unpacks it a bit. And I want to I wanna spend a bit of time showing you what that is. Sound no trumpet before you. This means there is a, a, a wrong way, obviously, right? Um, what is a hypocrite, though? Let's look at that quickly. The, the definition in the dictionary means to pretend to be something you are not. Um, to be on the outside as something, but on the inside something very different. And that word hypocrites is from the Greek Hippocrates. I hope I got that right. Um, but it, it's close enough. Um, it's a word that's in that context and in this time was used of those who were actors. They would wear masks. They would, be, they would portray to be somebody they're not. They were wearing a disguise so that they can be seen as something else, convincingly as something else. And Christ is saying to those who are giving this outward generosity, but inwardly are unloving, they're not being them, their true selves. They're wearing a mask. And when you think about it, we all know what a hypocrite is, right? We know it when we see it. <laughs> um, but not everyone knows who a hypocrite is. They're invisible to us. We know what it looks like, but we don't know who they are. But Jesus is now explaining who they are. <clears throat> in a, a, an incredible 
it wasn't even a backhanded insult. This is a forehanded full on club. So Luke 12, 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay, those are pretty shocking words at the time, not just describing a hypocrite, but then actually labeling them as Pharisees, pointing out who they were. And you can read of all, in, in Matthew 23, that whole section, he describes hypocrites and connects hypocrites with Pharisees seven times in that short section. So it wasn't that Pharisees didn't give, they gave. They were known as people who give. Man, they made a ceremony out of it. They, they gave often, they gave generously, and they gave publicly. And that was a way that wasn't pleasing to the Lord. It cannot please the Lord. And that is Christ's warning for us to avoid. Let's look at three ways that this is wrong. Firstly, with the trumpet. Now, it's a strong statement to point them out, right? Um, I think he might be employing a bit of poetic language here, even sarcasm, because I'm not sure they really carried a trumpet. They might have. Who knows? But even if they didn't, the principle is there, that they announced their giving, right? They blared it out as they gave. Um, They made sure everyone knew when they gave and to whom they gave. They were very busy with religious religious activity because he also employs that same warning to prayer, to fasting, right? To, um, yeah, commitment. And giving is no different. And this is obviously something we can see in the church today. Not our church, of course. Uh, I know this goes out on the interweb. Not our church. I, I won't say our church. But let's say when I'm home in Canada. Because no one in Can- I don't think we have the internet in Canada, so they won't hear this. When I'm there, and maybe it's because I'm in these wrong circles. I'm in missionary mission circles. And sometimes we're at conferences or banquets and... We, we accidentally bump into people who give. They give. But firsthand, I, I've seen where anonymous givers always um, are known. Um, so it's not anonymous. It's anonymously leaked that they are anonymous, seemingly. And we can see it even on the plaques on these great cathedrals and seminaries, even down to the pulpit in the small country church dedicated by, in gold or brass, probably not gold, it's brass. Um, So there's no trumpets, but there's the plaques, there's the announcements, there's the, the story. And it's not the amount that's important, right? It could be enough to build a seminary, but it could be enough to just give a cup of water. It's the principle. Christ is concerned how not how much. And so, the, the, the next problem with hypocritical giving is that it seeks glory that belongs to God, which I did mention, but it says here that they may be praised by others. They, they sound a figurative trumpet when they give because they want the recognition that comes with the praise of others. They, they love to have people praise them for the reputation that comes from being a generous person. Um, even if it's not true. Maybe they're horrible. They, 
Maybe they gave once, but they made a show of it. They wanted to be honored for their sacrifice, even if it didn't really cost them. And here, this is how Christ describes the Pharisees in Matthew 25. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. This is verse 5. For they make their, uh, their was it, phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. So their presence was obvious. Their attire, their mannerisms, who they associated with, where they went, all prestigious. They give to be noticed. They put on a show to be known as a Pharisee. They do what they do to be praised. So there is no desire to bring glory to God, but they absorb as much of that glory as they can for themselves. The warning here is that is the reward. Which leads to the final aspect of hypocritical giving. They receive an empty reward. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. This means to the extent of their reward that it's as short as their temporal lives are. Because when their life ends, the reward's been used up. It's been spent. In the blink of an eye. And so that doesn't satisfy. It does in the moment. It's empty. You've got to keep feeding it. It's empty calories in a sense. But it, more importantly, it does not survive the refiner's fire. Right? It cannot bring glory to God. It is the straw. It is the hay. It is the wood. And what Jesus is saying <clears throat> is that it has no value. If your giving is to receive praise, it better be worth it. You better be satisfied with that praise because that's all you're getting. And even if it's a plaque on a cemetery wall, maybe a name engraved on one brick in this $5 million church, wrong. It doesn't reward you in heaven. It has already been rewarded to you. No eternal value at all because God does not share the glory with you. God, and God cannot be expected to honor you with this selflessness of yours because you did it before men. And nor does God reward you for attempting to take glory for yourself. <laughs> that is hypocritical giving. So the next part of the passage here, if we can turn our attention back to Matthew 6. Um, uh, he gives our attention to what giving um, for God's glory does look like. Verses 3 and 4. But, he says now, turning to the positive, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here he's speaking of the opposite here that we've just looked at, this hypocritical, public, loud, trumpeting given, giving, that affirmation of men. Here, there's none of that, just the affirmation of God in secret. So the person who gives with a desire for the Lord does that quietly. Now, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that's okay. If that really is happening, we have some doctors in the house, um, there's obviously a disconnect. If you really have no control and they're doing their own thing, worrying, that is. But it's a principle here. It's a, a bit of exaggeration that he's employing to highlight this kind of anonymity that we need to have in our giving. 
not only should we be trying to be anonymous in our giving to one another, you shouldn't be even praising yourself. That's why the disconnect between the right and the left. Don't keep a record of your good works, is what he's saying. So the analogy here paints this nice anonymity picture. Um, yeah, so that your, your right and left hand aren't even aware of their giving. Yes, hopefully not their taking. Um, if so, if you give that anonymously, then obviously, if you're not even keeping a record of it, no one else is. No one's watching, no one's looking, because not even you are keeping a record. And that's how to give righteously. In the Olivet Discourse, Christ says this in Matthew 25, verse 34 to 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. This is future tense. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So this is kind of a parallel illustration that we've just been looking at. Those that give lovingly, they give secretly, they give righteously. They will need to be reminded that they did that. When did we do this? Because they didn't keep a record, right? They didn't do it to be seen by men, to be rewarded in this temporal way, or the approval of man. You see, at the time, they weren't even thinking about themselves. They were only thinking about God's glory, to serve Him. We are just benefactors of their serving of the Lord and their praise from Him alone. It's worrying to me again, if I can go back to Canada. <laughs> there are people who love to recall the times they gave, and gave generously. You have no idea how much I gave, they say. And again, it's these circles that I'm in, missions, conferences perhaps, and, and there is some fundraising going on. So maybe it's a natural way that conversation starts, but they finish it. Man, they tell you how they loved someone. They loved on someone. I don't know even what that means. But they loved on someone in Africa or Asia or wherever it happens to be and how they came alongside this very poor person and they bought them a sandwich or maybe some clothes, some kind of gift, maybe it's just money. I tell you, they can keep you up all night recalling their stories of the dark continent and this ledger that they've kept, this record that they've kept of this trumpet giving, and it is long, but it'll be burned to ashes on the day of resurrection. There'll be nothing to show, there'll be no stories to recount in eternity. But those of you who are surprised that somebody remembered, that is because you gave righteously. Because, because you have forgotten, but they remembered. It is to give so secretly that no one, no one notices that it was you who gave. And you're trying to keep from being glorified before men. 
so that the Lord is glorified. Next, the thing that Christ identifies as the righteous giver here is who they give to the glory. Now, it's not explicitly stated in this passage, but it's, again, it's the second time I'm doing this, but I think I have grounds to stand on. I think it's heavily implied because the hypocrite gives to give glory to themselves, right? And the righteous giver does the opposite. Um, Then the glory can only go in one direction. If you're giving for God's glory, that's where it should be directed, to Him. And if you give to the poor, the poor man doesn't know who did it. And if they don't know, who will they give glory to? Who will they thank? Who will they be grateful toward? The Lord. They have thanked the Lord. They glorify Him because their need has been met, even though you were the one who bridged that gap. You simply passed on to what was God to them. A person who's in desperate need, maybe they're praying for a need to be met, a condition of the heart even, and you meet that secretly, the recipient doesn't thank the thin air, hopefully. Um, They don't give thanks to whatever happens to be in the room when they open the gift, the cat. Thank you, cat. Maybe it was you. They know that you, somebody gave, somebody was involved, but they praise the Lord that he has intervened through the selflessness of somebody else. Um, Incidentally, as I mentioned in the last message on giving, it is God who owns all things, right? It is God who gives anyway, because nothing we have is our own. How did you get what you have? You got a job, you got money, and you used that. God gave you all those things. He provides all our needs, all of our resources, even our families, our health, our church, all of it. So we're just passing that on. So when you give, do it in such a way as there is... No, wait, it hasn't been an hour. It's been 50 minutes. I'm almost done. Do it in such a way that there's only one person for them to thank, and that is God. That's all they can... That's the only only one the recipient can think of. And if later they find out, oh, actually, you were involved and you, you did secretly give, somehow they found out. A neighbor saw you sneaking up in the, in the night, put it in their mailbox. They'll still thank the Lord because they're not going to approach you often. They'll just praise God that you love them because your faithfulness to Him. And that is what Christ meant earlier in the Sermon on the Mount where He said in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see, what? Your good works, true, But who do they give glory to? They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus didn't tell us to shine the light of God on ourselves. He told us to shine the light of God so that that He would be glorified. So in your good deeds, don't seek out the spotlight. Try your best to point it always to Christ, to magnify Him so you will decrease and He will increase. You can't really increase God, but... The way that he is seen is increased. He is massive. He's big. We don't make him bigger. We just see how big he really is. So lastly, the righteous giver is the one who receives. There is a recipient here. You're receiving a rewards. In the last sentence in verse 4, it says, And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Because there's only one who can see what is done in secret, and that is the Lord. And when God is the only one who can see what you've done, then there's only one reward coming, and that is from Him. 
It's not how much, it's not how big, it's not even how desperate the need you satisfied was. It is why you gave. And the point that Christ is teaching in these passages tell us that no matter how much righteousness you're building up in your works, they are unrighteous if not for His glory. They are idolatry. They are hypocritical if not done so that only God sees it in secret. Now, what if you have given in that wrong way, that hypocritical way, that public way, and you know that's the only reward you're going to get. And maybe there's some in here that have lived a life like that, who don't know the Lord. You might be asking yourself, what is the point? What can I do? Christ here is saying, you need Him. Your wickedness cannot be outweighed in any way by more good works. Your sin cannot be covered by any amount of generosity or good deeds, only when you come to Christ to be clothed in His righteousness and your heart's desire is to be made right with Him, will your works ever be rewarded. Because your works will be right with Him. So be reconciled with God. Then you will desire His glory in all you do. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we are so thankful for these passages that we often read at a surface level. But Lord, we are all guilty of giving for the wrong motivation. We are all guilty of the sin of the eye service of man. And Lord, help us to overcome the desire for temporal things, but desire the eternal things. Help us, Lord, to glorify you in even our thoughts, in our words, and here as we've read especially our deeds. We pray that they would be glorifying to you. We thank you for your word. In your son's name, amen.